Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, know that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows us his love, for that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. The word of the Lord. Thank you, Tori. And thank you all for joining us today, here in person or for our service online. Really appreciate your being with us. And um, we are going to celebrate communion today, the Lord's Supper. So if you're at home and you have some bread <clears throat> or juice, you might want to have those handy. Maybe you picked up one of our little prepackaged cups that those of you here uh, at church got on your way in this morning. We'll celebrate that uh, at the end of the message in about 25 minutes. Thank you again for being here with us today. I want to mention next week is a really special Sunday for us, whether you're here in person or joining us online. Our speaker is one of our international missionaries. I'm not going to tell you their names or where they're serving because they're in a place that it's um, dangerous to serve, dangerous to be a Christian, but um, fantastic folks. I know them pretty well and very excited they're going to be with us next week. Today we're continuing our series that we've called One Story. We're looking at the unity of the Bible from beginning to end. The 39 books of the Old Testament, the 27 books of the New Testament that combine to form one unified theme, God's great plan of redemption for his people. Though the books of the Bible were written over a period of 1,400 plus years by over 40 different authors from different walks of life and in different regions, the, piece, the books of the Bible fit together like the pieces of a beautifully crafted, divinely inspired puzzle. And we're looking at this unity. That's why we call it one story. God's great plan of redemption from beginning to end for his people. Starting in January, we began with the book of Genesis. Now we've been through the Old Testament. We've looked at the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Last week... We looked at the book of Acts, this wonderful history of the early Christian church. And today we get to the first of the letters, the book of Romans. The book of Romans has been called a compact summary of the Christian faith, but it is so very much more. The book of Romans is the most complete systematic theology of the Christian faith. In the book of Romans... This letter written by the Apostle Paul to the church at Rome, the Apostle Paul is laying out a very clear and logical understanding of what the Christian gospel is. It's a very clear explanation of God's one-story plan. 
In the book of Romans, he ties together the purpose of the Old Testament law with the fulfillment that Jesus brings to God's plan in the new and how a person can be part of this great one-story plan of God. Book of Romans, most people consider it a book of theology, and it is theology, but it's more than theology. It's theology that leads to love, that leads to right living. The little diagram you see on the screen, I think, is a good expression of the book of Romans. It really lays out this theology, this knowledge of God, this knowledge of this great one-story plan we call the gospel. And in response to our understanding, it increases our love for God. And because we love God, that love overflows into love for others, and that guides the way we live. That leads us to right practice. Now, I stress the fact that the book of Romans is a theology of love, and I want to read to you Paul's introductory uh, statement in chapter 1 and verse 7. Those of you who have a Bible might want to look at Romans 1 and verse 7, whether you're at home or looking on your, your, your phone here, you'll see it on the screen. Uh, no, you will not see it on the screen. Romans 1 and verse 7, listen carefully to how he addresses this book. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. To those who are loved by God and called to be saints. The message, is, the message of Romans is for those who are loved by God. And notice the order. Loved by God and called to be saints. We're not loved by God because we are saints. We're loved by God and called to be saints. God loves us into sainthood. The New Testament word for saint does not refer to a special category or class of Christian. It simply means one who's set apart, set apart to God, set apart for God. So in that sense, every Christian, every true believer is a saint, a set-apart one. Romans is written to those who are loved by God, and you're called to increasingly be set apart in life, word and deed, to God. Now, understanding the book of Romans takes some, some thought, and we have to understand some important theological terms. I want to share three of those with you, and uh, we'll encounter these words in the book of Romans. Um, of course, we're just going to briefly touch on it today. But one of these words is the word righteousness. Righteousness can be understood as, as rightness in the eyes of God. God himself is the standard for righteousness. God is the standard of what is right. The Bible says in Romans chapter 3 and verse 10, none is righteous, no, not one. No mere human being is righteous. Only God is truly in and of himself, purely, perfectly righteous, and he defines rightness, righteousness. Second term, uh, phrase important to understand, is the wrath of God the righteous and just anger of God against sin. Romans 1.18 says, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. The wrath of God is not like human anger. Our human anger is always tainted somewhat with our sin and weakness, but God's wrath is 
very holy. It's always right. It's always just. It's always good. It's a part of who God is. God wouldn't be God without his holy wrath against that which is evil and wrong in his eyes. And then thirdly, a word we're really going to focus on this morning is the word justification. Extremely important to understand what this word means. Justification is something God does. Something God does, something we receive. We are justified. God is the justifier. Justification is an act of God whereby he considers our sins forgiven and he credits the righteousness of God to us. Romans 5 and verse 9 says, Since therefore we've been justified by his blood, that is by the blood of Jesus shed on the cross, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Justification. It's important to understand this about justification. We cannot be justified by our good actions, good deeds, or good intentions. I think this may be the most misunderstood uh, idea about Christianity in, in the United States of America. That is that you become a Christian. Yeah, it's important to believe in God, but you become a Christian really by doing good, trying to do good, maybe joining a church, maybe cleaning up, up your life a bit. I can't tell you how many people I've talked to over the years that had this ingrained into their understanding that, yes, it's important to believe in God, but to be a Christian, you've got to do something. You've got you to change your life. You've got to get to a certain level. Here's what the Scripture says in Romans 3 and verse 20. For by works of the law, our efforts to be perfectly good in the eyes of God, even by obeying His holy law, no human being, not one, will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Remember what it means to be justified. God declares us forgiven of sins, credited with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. It cannot come by our efforts. A Christian is a person whom God has justified, and that does not happen by our good works, good deeds, good intentions. We're justified by God's grace through faith because of Jesus' sacrifice for us. And Romans 3, verses 23 and 24, spell this out about as clearly as any verses could. When Paul the Apostle writes to the Christians loved by God, called to be saints at Rome, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, every one of us. Every human being that's ever walked on this earth except for Jesus Christ. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift. A gift. On what basis? Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. We receive this simply by faith as verse 26 says. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. If you were to die today and stand before God and uh, 
God or, 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 or one of the angels should say to you, why should I let you in heaven? Average American would probably start thinking of all the best things they'd ever done. Their good efforts, good deeds, good intentions. But it's justification based on what Jesus did that provides our forgiveness, our entry into eternal life. I love this quote by John Piper, pastor, author, teacher. I think it summarizes the message of the gospel um, this idea of justification, as well as any quote outside of the Bible that I think I've ever heard. Here's what he writes. The wisdom of God has ordained a way for the love of God to deliver us from the wrath of God without compromising the justice of God. God's just judgment fell upon Jesus. He took our place. The wisdom of God is ordained a way for the love of God to deliver us from the wrath of God without compromising the justice of God. Now this morning we're going to look a little more deeply into Romans chapter 5, passage that Tori read just a moment ago. It is a short little passage that is chock full, packed of spiritual um, truth and riches for us. And it, it talks about what it means to be a justified person. So for those who've received Jesus as your Lord and Savior, these are things that are true, being justified. Number one, being justified by faith, we have peace with God. Here's again what Romans 5 and verse 1 says, therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Peace with God, as it's used in this verse, is not the absence of stress. It's not having a bunch of good feelings all the time. It is the security of being accepted by him and eternally joined to him on the basis of what Jesus has done. It's a secure foundation for our lives. One commentator, Robert Mount, says to have peace with God means to be in a relationship in which all the hostility caused by sin is removed. I know that some of you watching or here this morning probably struggle uh, to some degree with fear or anxiety or worry. I know. I've, I've had some of that struggle in my own life, and I, I know many Christians who have and others who do. The presence of feelings of anxiety doesn't mean that you do not have peace with God. Your peace with God is not a feeling. It's not a lack of anxiety or, or, or a lack of worry. Your peace with God is an established, secure relationship into which you have been brought by the Son of God, Jesus Christ, and what he did on the cross, and no one can take it away from you. It is a secure foundation for your life. It is not a feeling. It's a reconciled relationship that has been secured and is secure because it is based on the righteousness of Jesus and not on the way you and I may feel at any particular time. This is an incredible promise the Apostle Paul has laid out for those of us who are loved by God and called to be saints. Being justified by faith, we have peace with God 
We've been brought into this restored, reconciled relationship. How? Through what we've done? No. Through our Lord Jesus Christ, who He is, what He's done. But there's more to being justified. Paul goes on to tell us, not only do we have this peace with God, but we have access. We have access to a grace-based life with God. Verse 2 reads, Through Him, that is through Jesus Christ, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. The word access is used a couple of other places in the New Testament, twice in the book of Ephesians. In Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 18, Paul writes, Through Him, through Jesus, we both, Jew and Gentile, have access by one Spirit to the Father. In Romans 3 and verse 12, it writes, In whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in Him. Both those verses could be references to prayer. The fact that as a believer in Jesus, you and I have direct access to the Father. We don't need to go through a human mediator like a, a priest. We have direct access to God. But this verse, Romans 5 and verse 2, the one you're looking at now, while it may have reference to prayer, it means far, far more than simply having access to God in prayer. It has to do with the grace-based life with God in which we live. It means we live in God's grace and we stand in God's grace. Yes, we pray in the grace of God directly to the Father, but it also means when, when you're accused or condemned by Satan, that you stand in the grace of God. You've been given this access into a life in God's grace. When you are feeling overwhelmed with guilt because of something you did years ago and for which you have repented before God, you don't stand on the merit of who you are. You stand because you have been brought by the access provided through Christ into the grace of God. When you are feeling tempted and battered like you're being battered by wave after wave of some recurring temptation, you stand in the grace of God. Not in your own human ability to work up some kind of a feeling. We have access. We live in this grace. Justification means we have peace, this reconciled relationship, and it means we have access into a life of grace with God in which we stand, in which we live. And there's more to it. Thirdly, being justified by faith, we have joyful anticipation of our future with God. Notice what the second part of verse 2 in chapter 5 reads. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Do you know what the glory of God is? I don't think I really understand what the glory of God is. I'm not sure it's possible to fully comprehend humanly in this life what the glory of God is. I know it's something that Jesus spoke about and he anticipated when Jesus was praying, he said, Now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory I had with you before the world existed. 
And he said, Father, I desire that they also whom you've given me be with me where I am to see my glory which you've given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. Jesus had this longing to return to this glory that he had in the presence of the Father. I think it has to do with the very presence of the beauty and the brightness and the perfection and the goodness of the love of God. And I think the Apostle Paul was anticipating this glory. And he, and he says things when he writes, like, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. He says things like, I long to depart and be with Christ, for that is better by far. He says things like, our citizenship is in heaven and from there we await a Savior. Anticipating this glory of God. Paul and really all the, the disciples that we know of who write in the early Christian church seem to be looking forward to something, anticipating something. They lived with an eternal perspective. Their minds weren't just on things of this life, things of this world, though they did an awful lot to help other people, the poor and the needy and the lost and unreached in this life. Their hearts were really set, as was the heart of Jesus on something greater, something further, something beyond. They live with an eternal perspective. There was this joyful anticipation of the glory of God that lay before them, beyond this life. Now, some people scoff at this. I heard a pastor, not, of course not in our church, outside of our church, recently scoffeth this idea, referring to it as pie in the sky. I think the gospel calls us to live with an eternal perspective. Some people say, yeah, but there's so much to do here on earth. Yes, there is. And in my opinion, people who live with an eternal perspective do far more for people here in this life on this earth. And I think history bears it out. The reason I think that is true is that people who live with an eternal perspective are not tied to money-loving covetousness, consumption for themselves and their self-centered ways here in this life. Who could count the hospitals, the schools, the orphanages built by devoted missionaries who sacrificed their lives, who laid down their lives for the lives of others while looking with joyful anticipation to the glory of God to come? Living with an eternal perspective frees us from some of that covetousness. Jesus talked about this when he talked about laying up treasure in heaven, not coveting so much. This world, this life only. The Apostle Paul lived this way, had this joyful anticipation. And he says that being justified brings us into this secure relationship of peace with God. It brings us into... Access, access to a grace-based life with God in which we stand. It brings us into a life of joyful anticipation of the glory of God, that which is yet future for every believer, no matter what this life brings. And then finally, the fourth thing, being justified by faith, we can have a new perspective towards suffering. knowing three things.
Number one, suffering produces endurance. Notice what verse 3 says. Not only that, not only do we rejoice in, in the anticipation of the coming glory. It says something that's a little hard to swallow, frankly. He says we rejoice in our sufferings. Why? Knowing that suffering produces endurance. Now the word endurance is used often in the New Testament. Sometimes it is translated as perseverance. Sometimes it's rendered steadfastness. The Greek word itself is the idea of abiding under, remaining steadfast, persevering, remaining faithful, enduring under trial, remaining faithful to God under trial. And Paul says here, suffering produces endurance. Any of you ever trained for a competitive sport? I'm sure a lot of, a lot of you have. Some of you maybe uh, uh, will be athletes in the future. Some are now, some have been. I remember uh, hearing a friend talk about what it was like to play um, football here at West High and then to play in college. And he talked about their two practices a day in the summer and how you would push yourself to your utter limits and go beyond your limits, building endurance. Those of you who are competitive runners or you run marathons, you know this. Those of you who swim or play soccer or basketball or field hockey, virtually any sport, you know how important it is to push yourself to develop endurance. It's a desirable quality, and it is a quality that is absolutely necessary in order to be a mature Christian. In fact, the Apostle James would say, there's no way around it. You've got to have this endurance if you're going to be perfect, complete, that is, spiritually mature. Because he writes in the book of James, Count it all joy, my brothers, whenever you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, steadfastness, perseverance. And this steadfastness, this perseverance, this endurance must have its full effect so that you may be perfect and complete. In other words, spiritually mature, not lacking in anything. Suffering brings this about in the life of a person who is justified, who is abiding under uh, the trial, remaining faithful to God. Suffering produces endurance. Paul says that's why we rejoice in it. Because I know it's some, there's something good happening as I'm remaining faithful to God through suffering. And he goes on to say endurance produces character. In verse 5. Uh, verse 4 of chapter 5, endurance produces character. Now, the word for character here refers to something or someone who has been tested, someone who's been approved. We think of a Christian who's been through hard things, and yet they're standing strong in God. They're not easily shaken. They're not easily moved. Maybe you've known a person like this, Maybe you've known a couple like this who's gone through something very, very difficult in their family, but yet they've stayed steadfast in their relationship with one another, their relationship with God. I think of someone in our church who reminds me of this type of character, proven character. Uh, her name was Debbie Wright. Some of you knew Debbie. 
died in 2019. And throughout years of, of pain and, and battling cancer, it just seemed that her love for the Lord grew. And you could almost see it on her face, in her countenance, this brightness, this love for Jesus Christ through the pain, through the suffering, through the, the difficulty, this reflection. Suffering can produce endurance, endurance character. In character, Paul goes on to write, produces hope that is grounded on God's love for us. And we read these words in verses 4 to 5. And character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Character produces hope. Biblical hope is not wishful thinking. It is not optimism. Biblical hope is a confident reassurance that the will of God, the promise of God, will come to pass. And the assurance for this type of hope comes because God's love is poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, elsewhere by Paul, is called a deposit, a guarantee, a down payment, sealing the truth of God in our hearts, that we, we experience a, the love of God and we anticipate greater fullness of the love of God in the life to come. This theological letter... The book of Romans is a theology of love. And Paul really summarizes the book when he says this in verse 8. God shows his love for us. And that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper in just a moment. But first I'd like to pray. And if you are watching our service or maybe even here with us and you're not sure whether you're a Christian... You're saying, i still got some questions. I'm still seeking. I want to know what the Bible teaches. I'd recommend starting probably one of the Gospels, maybe the Gospel of John, but then number two, I'd go to the book of Romans. Bit of a challenging book to understand. You're going to have to think when you read the book of Romans, but it will lay out a clear understanding of the love of God conveyed in the Gospel of Jesus Christ to us. Would you join me as we pray now? Father, how we thank you that you have given us this beautiful book to all those loved by God called to be saints. Thank you for your love. Thank you that you loved us first, Father, though we did not love you, that you demonstrated your love for us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you for a relationship of peace secured by Jesus. Thank you for access into a life in your grace. Enable us to stand in this grace. Thank you for the joyful anticipation of what's ahead and thank you that even in suffering as our eyes are on you we grow into spiritual maturity and greater Christ-likeness. May it be, Father. And I pray for those who may not know you yet, that you would draw them close today to putting their faith in the one and the only one who justifies us, Jesus and his saving work on the cross.
And we pray in his great name. Amen.